From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. And what better way to start the day than with a taco? If it's been a while since you've been on a taco crawl, the taco eaters of L.A. Taco have an idea for you. Use the 33 bus line as a through line to some of the best tacos in L.A. L.A. Taco food journalist Memo Torres is here to drive the bus, so to speak. Hi, Memo. Hi, Evan. Hop on the bus with me. Let's go. (laughs) Let's go. So tell us um, what the route is for the 33 bus line. The 33 route, I mean, I've taken that my whole life. It takes us from Santa Monica over by the pier um, and the promenade and takes us down the coast, down the beach to Venice, all the way to Venice Boulevard. And then from Venice Boulevard, just goes straight into downtown. And if you go along that route, which is why LA Taco decided to choose this one from uh, a metro guide for the Line 33, it has probably the most epic, legendary, historic tacos you can find in Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, I th- once you start reading all the places, it's like, wow, I never thought of it in this way. You highlight 13 places that sit near the route. Let's do some highlights, starting out west in Santa Monica. I think it's also a reminder to those on the west side how rich the eating environment is there. Let's start with La Isla Bonita on Rose. Ah, I love La Isla Bonita. Uh, you know, I, when I was young, I used to work at a coffee shop just down the street and I'd go get tacos there. I mean, this place has been around since 1986. And fun fact... The reason they're called La Isla Bonita is actually because when they purchased the truck, Madonna's hit song, La Isla Bonita, was the one on the radio. <laughs> so it's named, <laughs> it's named after Madonna's La Isla Bonita. That's um, hilarious. Yeah, I would sing it, but you know, I don't I don't wanna I don't wanna offend Madonna here, but <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and funny enough, also when they bought it, not only was that song there, they had just their firstborn child, Jose who is now still there. He's, he's working a truck still. And, um, you know, they, they still do tacos the way you usually see them in Mexico, which is sprinkled with like some frijoles de la olla, so fresh beans on top um, and a good salsa. It's a very old school truck. Um, they do mariscos as well, like ceviches and cocktails. But um, I'd recommend if you stop by, you see the young chef back there, Jose, working it. Ask him if he's got a secret menu, a secret taco today. Because he usually has something cooked up, a different fish taco, maybe a pulpo, maybe a gobernador. But yeah, it's a legendary truck. It's been there for years, and it's probably the only ones that survived gentrification in that area. So some of the places on this list have uh, a nixtamal program for their tortillas, which is really great to hear. Tell us about the restaurant Kidayin near the Venice Sentinella stop. Yeah, Kidayin, um, it opened up probably about four years ago, I want to say. Um, Oaxacan restaurant has, um, you know, all your, you know, your typical Oaxacan dishes, tlayudas, enmoladas, taco de barbacoa. But one of the things that this restaurant does is that I really respect is they don't cut any corners. They'll make chocolate from scratch. Everything they do there is as close to the beginning as you can get it for an ingredient. They even went so far as to starting their own Nixtamal program. 
you know, making their own masa, making their own tortillas in-house, which is, you know, it's, it's a lot of work, but it's very respectable when a restaurant takes that much effort to ensure that every ingredient they've touched, they've produced, they've made, and it comes through in the flavors of any meal you get there. What's your order? Well, since it's a taco list, I recommended the, the taco de barbacoa, the tortilla they use for it, which is a larger tortilla. They make it. It's part of their next tamal program. So you get that full flavor of a fresh corn tortilla with their delicious barbacoa, which is goat, simmered and stewed with spices. Get some onions on there, a little bit of a cabbage, get a little bit of salt, green salsa on there. I just think that it's a great dish to have to stop by. So next up is another place that's making its own masa from Nixtam Live's corn, and that's Sabi's Cafe. Tell us about them. You know, Sabi's is a place I started going to recently in October, and the location's actually been there for a long time. It shares a block with Venice High School. It's right on the corner of Beethoven and Venice Boulevard, and it's a mother and son. And they took over three years ago, and the mother decided to revamp the menu they decided to bring in blue corn. Same thing as a kidayin. They're doing it from scratch. They're nixtamalizing the blue corn. They're making their own masa. They're using predominantly blue corn for everything, whether it be for the tacos or for tortillas with their dishes or for their big, long, machete-sized quesadillas. And is that your go-to order there? It is my go-to order there. <laughs> I usually go in the mornings. I'll get, I, I've had their chilaquiles. I mean, you can pretty much have chilaquiles anywhere in LA now. But like a large machete-sized quesadilla with, you know, indigenous ingredients like wheat lacoche. You can get flor de calabaza, uh, which is, you know, squash blossoms. You can also get like tinga or anything else on it. Just the fresh blue corn masa taste alone. And then they just use like a mozzarella cheese, which, you know, every taco stand uses here for their quesadillas. They use that queso Oaxaca source from down in Oaxaca. So the flavors are just phenomenal. Sounds so good. So I really love Cochinita PB. And who on the route is making tacos with it? Oh, Flor de Yucatan, which is a bakery. It's down over by Venice and Hoover. This was a pick that um, Hadley, our other writer at LA Taco, um, put on the list. It's it's one of his favorites. I've enjoyed it as well. Cochinita Pibil, which is down from Yucatan. It's a pork that's been cooked on the ground for hours on end. It's marinated with like an achiote, a little bit of citrus. You know, it's basically this deliciously pit roasted and marinated pork. And you can find that at Florida Yucatan. It's it's actually about, I don't know, it's a short walk. It's about a five-minute walk from Venice. It's actually down the block on Hoover. But it's definitely worth that little five-minute walk off the 33. Of course, the famed Leo's is on this route with its notable Trompo al Pastor. But let's give some love to Tacos Ibiria La Unica. Oh, <laughs> the West Side has been blessed by La Unica's decision. The legendary truck... Michoacan style that does both goat and beef from Boyle Heights, from the epic, you know, Olympic road down in uh, Boyle Heights. They decided to expand and bless the west side with a second truck. If you haven't heard of Birria La Unica, you're missing out. It's one of the best birrias. My personal favorite thing to get there is a quesataco. Now, I know everybody makes quesataco. They're like, what's so special about this one? It's one of the few trucks that actually makes their tortillas from scratch, from, by hand. They'll make a fresh-pressed tortilla. 
They'll put it on the on the griddle. They'll fry it on one side, just enough to where it gets crispy on one side, but on the inside, it's still nice and soft, like a tortilla is. And then they put the cheese and the meat in there. You take that crunchy bite and the smoothness of the tortilla and the cheese and the flavors of the birria comes through. To me, it's the most perfect quesadilla taco you could find in L.A. So now we're nearly at the downtown end of the route where, of course, there is the famed Sonora town. But you want us to pay attention to what you call what might be the most underrated place on this Venice crawl, La Esquinita Baja Grill Seafood. Yes. La Esquinita Baja Grill Seafood is this little corner right there on the... down on Venice Boulevard, just about a couple blocks from the convention center and the crypto arena. It's woman-owned. And the curious thing about it is that they have uh, three different people working in the kitchen. Someone from Peru, someone from Argentina, and also um, the owner herself, Mexican. So you'll find empanadas, you'll find a lomo saltado, but you also find these really tasty Baja-style fish tacos. They have an outdoor seating area, there's a little liquor next door, so if you buy your liquor, you know, get a beer, you can go over there and they'll have it, they'll prepare it as a michelada for you. Especially if you're on the bus, the bus exit is right there. You can stop by, enjoy these great fish tacos, get a michelada, and then head over to the crypto center. Perfect. We should say that there are a lot more suggestions than what we've had time to talk about here. I love this list so much. Thank you, Memo. Oh, thank you, Evan. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, thank you for having me on, and I hope everybody goes on this Metro Taco Crawl. Such a great idea. That was food writer Memo Torres sharing the L.A. taco story of tacos you can find along the 33 bus route. You can't have a good taco without a great tortilla. No one knows that more than Gustavo Arellano, the Gustavo behind KCRW and Gustavo's Great Tortilla Tournament. The big event is just two weeks away. We started this year's journey with 32 corn and 32 flour tortillas, but there are just eight of each left standing. Gustavo joins me now to talk about the ESO 8. Hi, Gustavo. Hola, Evan. Tell us a little bit about each of the SO8, the final eight contenders for corn and for flour um, in the 2023 tortilla tournament. Who are they? Well, first we're going to start with your bracket in corn. And you have have been upsetting all the odds like crazy because you have two people I would have never expected to be in the SO8. So the lineup is Pan Victoria versus La Yalaltequita. I was so nervous about these 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 matchups. I have to tell you. So Pan Victoria is a Central American style tortilla, so it's thicker, and I love thick tortillas, but it's yeah. different than just a gordita style tortilla. I don't know if perhaps you could explain it better than I. But I was just so drawn to it every time I put it up against another tortilla. It just sailed through the matchup. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, the Central American style tortillas, they are in a class of their own. So they're smaller, but they're also thicker. If, if you're familiar with a Mexican gordita, like something filled with food, that's kind of how it is. But imagine unadulterated, delicious masa. And Pan Victoria, it's this small little restaurant, kind of like a, a Guatemalan buffet off of Washington and La Brea. And then there's a second one in Inglewood. And it's exciting because we had never had... Central American tortillas in the tortilla tournament until now. And one of, you know, now you have a Guatemalteco tortilla in the SOA against another one. Uh, you were talking about La Yalaltequita, which is a Oaxacan style tortilla. And that one, I kept saying to myself, this can't be beating out the famed tortillerias that everybody is expecting to win. And I would keep putting it down and then taking another nibble. And it just had so much flavor. The flavor just beat it out every time. Well, Evan, I believe in you. (laughs) I always second-guess myself, Gustavo. I expect you to send me a notice saying, what are you thinking? (laughs) No way, no way. I mean, I, I, I was surprised, but I totally stand by them because they're delicious tortillas. And hey, the KCRW family could still taste uh, those tortillas, unlike my choices for the SOA in corn, two restaurants that no longer exist, Tallulah's versus Taco Maria. I know. How unfortunate. We've seen some major surprises this year. One of the big upsets was La Princesita, the beloved East L.A. tortilleria that won first place in 2022. It didn't even make it to the Suave 16 this year. What happened? Who beat La Princesita? That was your category. Again, I feel terrible. I mean, you know, it was a really good tortilla that I'm glad you liked it. Because again, you talk about second guessing. So there's a restaurant, it's a small little chain called Chiguacle. And they have one in Olvera Street. They have one in Sun Valley. It's delicious food. And you, I loved your nose because you were just blown away by Chiguacle's tortilla. Yeah. Yeah. So on my end, then, you have Tallulah's versus Taco Maria. You're going to have two blue corn tortillas. Uh, Tallulah's was in the SOA, or rather in the Fuerte Fort, the past two years. Taco Maria, of course, is a former champ. But uh, sadly, none of those tortillerias exist. But we're still going to keep them into the SOA because, well, you know, we had started the eating before they had closed down. So what are you going to do? And then flour, we have, again, you want to talk about upsets. This one's interesting. You have Manolo Farmer's Market, which is a chain of Latino supermarkets in San Diego County that makes their own tortillas. Really good, slightly raw flour tortillas. This is in Connie Alvarez's bracket, the KCRW Chingona, going up against Heritage Craft Barbecue. Now, Heritage is famous for their barbecue, but they barely started making their own flour tortillas. They use beef tallow, and they're already in the SOA. Unbelievable. So, Gustavo, it's the pledge drive right now. Why should people donate to KCRW? People need to pledge, not just now, but forever, to KCRW because only KCRW brings you this type of beautiful uh, hilarity of matching tortillas against each other in a sports-style tournament, of getting a Tex-Mex-style tortilla like Homestay in the other flower bracket against a San Diego legend in Las Cuatro Milpas. Like, no one else is going to be doing this. No one else is going to allow us the fun to eat nothing but tortillas for, God, it seems like, 
years on end for doing this and then doing a big finale where we invite everyone to taste some of the Fuerte Fours. That's what KCRW does and that's why everyone should donate to KCRW not just follow this wonderful fun tournament and all the other stuff on good food and other programs but hey, KCRW is where it's at. Thank you so much, Gustavo. Gracias. That was Gustavo Ariano, columnist for the Los Angeles Times and KCRW, giving us the scoop on KCRW and Gustavo's Great Tortilla Tournament. Join us on Sunday, October 8th at Smorgasburg, LA, where we will crown the ultimate winner. Head to our website, kcrw.com slash tortilla for more details and to vote for the People's Choice Award. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Good Food. Clancy Miller has performed nearly every job in food you can imagine, from cooking stir-fries in a college commissary to prepping brunch at a restaurant in Philly and then staging at the famed Taiwan in Paris. She did recipe development, food PR, tried out ghostwriting, authored her own cookbook, and then in 2020, founded the magazine For the Culture. Now, a new book of the same name explores mentorship for young Black women looking to get into the business of food. In a collection of interviews, some with recipes, leaders in the industry share advice on building a team, lessons learned, and challenges faced with unexpected candidness. Clancy joins us to share her vision. So my purpose in starting it was to highlight Black women and femmes in food and hospitality. And my feeling had been that I kind of wish I had known more about the options in food in the food world when I was just starting out. And I also felt lucky that over the past several years, I've gotten to know so many different people in the food world. You know, in mainstream media, you don't necessarily get a lot of stories told about Black women in food or Black women in wine. And wouldn't it be cool to have stories told from our perspective with Black women writers focusing on Black women and femmes with Black women photographers? In other words, what if we looked at the world of food through a Black woman's gaze. You say if we care about Julia Child, we should equally be interested in five other women, the women on whose shoulders we stand, the matriarchs, if you will. Can you name these these five women, these giants? Yeah, absolutely. So the book is mostly composed of interviews, but there are five women who are no longer living who I consider culinary matriarchs. And so I wanted to write personal essays about Edna Lewis, Barbara Elaine Smith, also known as B. Smith, Leah Chase, Verda Mae Smart Grovesner, and Lena Richard. Tell us about Lena Richard, who had her own cooking show airing twice a week, 15 years before Julia's The French Chef. Exactly. Yeah. So I learned about Lena Richard 
thanks to Dr. Jessica B. Harris, who spoke about her uh, at a talk I was at in 2017. Lena Richard started out as a domestic cook for a white family in Louisiana. She was extremely talented, and this family sent her up north to go to a culinary school. She came back, continued to cook for this family. She was extremely entrepreneurial. She opened a culinary school for other domestic cooks so that they could essentially improve their skills and charge more money for their services. She opened a culinary school for newly married women so that they could learn how to cook for their families. She wrote a cookbook. She had a restaurant. She was an itinerant chef who I would consider them pop-ups. She would cook for a temporary amount of time at different restaurants in the North. She truly had an empire, a line of food, cookbooks, cooking schools, a cooking show, a restaurant. Her career is incredible. And I think what a lot of people aspire to and the fact that she was doing all of this in the Jim Crow South is phenomenal to me. So let's talk about some of the women you spoke to. Tell us about the work of Gabrielle E.W. Carter, co-founder of Tallgrass Food Box. She calls herself a cultural preservationist. So Gabby's work is so incredibly inspiring and multidisciplinary. She's got a fashion background. She's got a restaurant background. And I first met her in New York. And then a few years ago, she made the decision to go back to her family's home in North Carolina. And she has been helping her family steward the land. She's made a beautiful home for herself. And so she's learning about all these different aspects of gardening and farming from her family. And she's also creating clothing and creating natural dyes. And she's got an incredible CSA. And then she also has an amazing newsletter and she does these great dinner series. And all of it is based on her educating herself on her family's land and learning how to make charcuterie, learning how to make all of these things that we often look to other cultures for. You know, we often look to, say, France or Italy for sausages or charcuterie, but we have a tradition here in this country, here in the South, and she has that tradition within her family. She can actually turn to people to learn how to make these things and become an expert herself in her own family's traditions. And I just think that's so powerful looking right under your nose at the ground you are walking on and having some reverence for it and some reverence for your own family's legacy. Throughout the book, one sees that many of these women um, that you interviewed are, are multi-hyphenates. It's kind of like a common theme yes. among these women. Could you um, briefly talk about Ashton Berry? Share some details about Resistance Served. 
Yeah, so I attended Ashton Berry's conference, Radical Exchange, in New Orleans, uh, Resistance Served. And it was incredible. She had farmers talking about being a Black farmer now, the plight of Black farmers, you know, both the the joys and the the trials and tribulations. And so many people linking so many themes of the legacy of colonialism in the spirits that we drink. Just so many interesting ways of approaching food and thinking about what ends up on our plates and in our glasses. It was just really, really rich. And I deeply appreciate all that Ashton does in terms of her approach to educating people about the world of hospitality, the legacy of slavery and hospitality in terms of the tipping system. Not only is she an educator, she's also a mixologist. She also has this really cool background in hospitality. I just, I think she is a very important figure in the world today. The book is really, really marvelous. And I think that it's going to be an inspiration for younger women of color who want to have more mentors than they might have around them in their actual life. Thank you so much, Clancy. Thank you. Thank you. That was writer and pastry chef Clancy Miller, author of For the Culture, Phenomenal Women and Femmes in Food. The second issue of her magazine by the same name is In the Works. Angelinos have two opportunities to see Clancy live this week. She'll be in conversation with High in the Hog producers Fabienne Toback and Karis Jagger at the Ace Hotel on Monday, September 25th. And on Wednesday, the 27th, she'll be talking with Danielle Dorsey at Now Serving. We've got links to both events at our website, kcrw.com goodfood. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Soon after the Jewish high holidays have ended, here in Los Angeles, one can see huts being erected outdoors. Sometimes they are constructions entirely of bamboo stalks with roofs of palm leaves. Others have metal posts holding up plastic sheets to create an enclosure. The yearly trimming of palm trees on public property in L.A. coincides with the holiday of Sukkot to provide material for those who observe this early autumn holiday. My mother and one of her best friends used to drive around the city, especially to look for these huts. They called it sukkah sighting. Here to explain the meaning of the holiday and its food traditions are Rabbi Zoe Bzak and recipe developer Susan Simon. Their new book is The Cook and the Rabbi. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having us on. Oh, I'm so happy you could join. This time of year, many of us are aware of and observe the Jewish high holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, but quick on their heels is Sukkot. Rabbi, would you please tell us about the holiday and its significance and what the word means? Yes, I would be delighted to. Thank you. Sukkot is the plural of the Hebrew word sukkah. And a sukkah is a hut. 
you know, like a little, a little, a little place, a little, a little place to dwell. And it has several meanings, but the joy of Sukkot is that it's really the reward, the reward that comes after going through the high holidays and all this period of time that's very introspective. And Sukkot is a total celebration, Um, the most joyous, exuberant holiday where we celebrate the seeds that have been planted, both literal seeds outside and the seeds planted within ourselves that have been nurtured and cared for and grown and then harvested. And at Sukkot, we're celebrating the harvest. So we build these amazing huts that can look so many different ways. And that is the joy of doing uh, sukkah hunting because no two ever look alike. But the sukkah itself has has some different symbolism. And one is that when our ancestors long, long time ago were freed after having been slaves in Egypt and they became free people, they wandered the desert for 40 years before they came to the promised land. And during this time, they lived in huts. They lived in tents. They lived in huts as they traveled through on their journey, on the way to this promised land that they were promised. And another symbolism is that it's the divine presence, the Holy One, the Creator, who protected our ancestors as they dwelled in those Sukkot, all those years that they traveled. Your congregation, Temple Israel of the Catskills, actually starts preparations um, for the, the sukkah at the end of Passover in the spring, don't you? We do. It's a bit unusual, but I started this so many years ago. And the reason I love doing it is Sukkot is about celebrating the harvest, but how do you get to that harvest? And there are certain things that I love to have in my sukkah, which are gourds and sunflowers and certain things that have very long growing seasons. So what I started to do in my home, and now we do here at Temple Israel of Catskill, is that we plant certain things that have very long growing seasons so that by Sukkot, they have grown up the sides, the poles, uh, the four corners, and uh, we put a top of either lattice or string so that the plants can grow up over the top. And so by the time Sukkot comes, we already have an amazing foliage of some really beautiful and exotic plants. So Susan, let's bring you into the conversation. Let's talk about the food of this festival. What are some of your memories of the holiday um, growing up? I come from a secular family and I've always been fascinated by the holidays, but never really celebrated them. So I took advantage of doing this book to be inspired by the food of the entire Jewish diaspora and be inspired by the harvests. 
I'm very East Coast centric, but I did do a passion fruit curd recipe because I have a friend in California who sends me harvests from his garden and passion fruit seems to come at the same time sukkah comes. So the recipes in the book are made with pumpkin, made with venison when hunting season starts, made with the Concord grapes that you find in this area at this time of the year. There's a dish in the chapter that I've never heard of before called arope. Could you describe what it is, where it's from, and how it's made? Well, arope is from the Iberian Peninsula, and it's still made in Spain. It's not necessarily Jewish but the Jews of the Iberian Peninsula made it and they used it, used it in, in a lot of their food. It can be made with just grapes, made into a syrup with boiled down grapes, but it also can be made and sweetened with figs and hard skin squash, which is how I made the arope. And I, I talk about using it right away during sukkah, using it as part of a salad dressing, using it poured over a cheese log. But I also talked about freezing it, which I do because you can't get Concord grapes all year round. And I love to use it during Passover, during one of the recipes, which is a Greek recipe for fried matzah. But with the rope, arope over, it's, it's delicious. You boil down the grapes, the squash and the figs together and then push it through a sieve and you've got this beautiful syrupy, dark purple sauce that's got sweet and it's got tart. It's got all the flavors. Well, thank you both of you so much. You're so welcome. That was recipe developer Susan Simon and Rabbi Zoe Bzak. Together, they've given us recipes and stories to celebrate the Jewish holidays in their book, The Cook and the Rabbi. We've got a recipe for Susan's passion fruit curd on our website. Head to kcrw.com slash goodfood. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. Let's head to the Santa Monica Farmer's Market, where Jillian Ferguson is gathering ideas for one of my favorite seasonal fruits. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. One of the first signs of fall at Southern California markets is quince. The fruits look like enormous fuzzy pears, and most of the production in the U.S. is centered here in California in the San Joaquin Valley. Becky Terry is one of the handful of farmers who brings it to market this time of year. Hi. Hey, Julian. It's great to be here with you this morning. It's great to have you back here. I imagine you spend a lot of time at the market these days explaining to perplexed customers what this fruit fruit is. So give us your elevator pitch for quince. It's a fruit that you need to cook. Even though we have some of our South American friends who will eat it raw, but they're going to do a lime juice cook on it. So they're going to do, pretend like it's a margarita, salt, chili pepper, and a quince. I can't do it. It's got so much pectin in it. My jaws would hate me. Yes, it's very astringent. Most people of European extraction are going to make pastries out of it. And if you're in the Middle East extraction, you're going to put it in a lamb stew. And it's yummy. Well, it's very unique to have these here. If we do get inspired when we pass your stand at the market and want to take some home, how do we pick one out and how do we handle it when we get home? Okay, so they're beautiful on your counter. The longer they set, the more fragrant that they will get with the um, fragrance permeating our house. 
apple with vanilla overtones. Are they ready to eat now or do we need to let them sit for a little bit? They are ready and we are packing and shipping across the United States and into Japan these days. Wow. Can anybody listening from out of state find your quince? They're going to find me on Facebook, uh, Terry Ranch or Becky Terry. You can order them, pick them up here. I've been known to ship and put them in UPS too. All right. Thank you, Becky. All right. That was Becky Terry of Terry Ranch. She is growing her quince in the San Joaquin Valley, just south of Fresno. You can find her at the Wednesday and Saturday Santa Monica Farmers Markets with her quince, her pears, her jujubes. The season is just getting started. Uli Nasibova is the Uli behind Uli's Gelato, and she's a frequent shopper here at the farmer's market where she sources seasonal fruits and herbs for her gelato flavors. But she's also a mom, and when she's not making gelato, she's cooking for her family. So today, I wanted to talk to Uli about a quince dish that is part of her weekly repertoire this time of year. Hi, Uli. Hi, Jillian. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about quince. Many people know about membrio or quince paste, and I often see it sort of poached in a dessert, but you're making a savory dish. Tell us about it. What people don't know about quince is that it has a very unique flavor profile. It has just the right amount of tartness and just the right amount of sweetness that if you add it to a savory dish, it's not going to overtake anything, but it's going to highlight all of the savory notes. And quince also has a ton of pectin. So if you're making a sauce, so in my case, it's a chicken sauce, it creates this perfect vehicle for everything kind of being saucy and ooey and gooey. It's just, it's just perfect. So you said it's chicken. How do you make it? What are all the components? So just like all children of the planet Earth, my children are obsessed with chicken. (laughs) And I always start very simple. I get a ton of onions. The more onions, the better. And by the way, when I make this dish, I make enough to like feed a whole army just because children also eat more than adults, I've learned, because they have to grow a ton in a short period of time. So, you know, I'll get a ton of onions And I'll start cooking them on low heat. And then once the onion juice comes out and they start browning slowly, I'll kind of add a tiny bit of sugar to help with caramelization, a little bit of salt. But then what I'll do is I'll transfer the onions out and all of that beautiful brown is still in the pan and I'll get my chicken started. So I go for organic chicken thighs with the bone in. You You need the bone for the flavor. And then I'll brown the chicken in that pan So in the meantime, I have my beautiful quince. I washed it. I always keep the skin on. I love quince skin. And because of the way I cook it, it softens. But you have to cut it into slices. Think of it as you're cutting it into just, you know, what what a classic apple slice would look like. As the chicken starts to brown, you add the quince in. And you add the onion back in. You close the cover, you put it on low heat for 15 minutes, and the magic starts happening. The quince starts softening, all of that onion, all of that chicken juice is drying, that tartness, that pectin, it's just like, it's just a beautiful thing happening in that pan. What you need to see is the quince has softened. This is the part that I do that you don't have to do. But separately, if tomatoes are in season, you get the beefiest, juiciest tomatoes and you remove the skin as much as possible. If you don't want to do that and let's say, you know, you're a busy mom, no, no, no shade, go get organic canned tomatoes with the skin removed. I've done it. 
<laughs> it's okay. You, you add the tomato pulp. One more thing, totally optional, but it's a staple in my family. It's saffron. And the best place to buy saffron is Westwood. Go to Westwood, go to one of the Iranian mom and pop shops. I don't know what the regulations are in terms of importing saffron, mm. but if you want good saffron, try to get Iranian saffron. And when you're using your saffron, you know it comes in the threads, how do you grind it up into a powder? So I boil some water, a cup of water, then I take a tablespoon and I put my saffron into a bowl. You take your tablespoon and you kind of use the back of the tablespoon to grind up the saffron. It doesn't have to be powder, but it has to be smaller. That same bowl, you keep it and you add half of the boiling water and you swish it around. The water turns into this gorgeous golden color. Only saffron can give it. Then you add that water to your chicken sauce. Then you add the rest of the water into your bowl because surely you didn't get all of the saffron threads. And saffron is very expensive. And then put it in your chicken sauce. There is not a better combination than saffron and quince. Shout out to beautiful Iranian and Caucasus cuisine. <laughs> and then the last thing that I do, I'll get potatoes. And I let this saffron water quince, chicken, onion, tomato sauce, just kind of like cook on very low heat for 45 minutes. And then about 15 minutes before I turn off the heat, I get some potatoes from the farmer's market, cut it into circles, put it on top of the sauce, let it cook kind of like with the vapors of the dish. And then very towards the end, right before I serve my chicken, I kind of mix everything and it becomes one mixed dish. It's unbelievable. Oh, I can't wait to try it. Thank you so much, Uli. Thank you. That was Uli Nasibova of Uli's Gelato. We will have a link to the recipe for that saffron chicken with quince on our website. And if you want to follow it up with some gelato, you can find Uli's Pints at Bristol Farms, Juice de Grocer, and on DoorDash. For The Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Elena Shatkin, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and Hope Brush. And special thanks to Laura Kondarajan and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. For those of you listening via podcast, you might have realized it's a shorter show this week. That's because it's our fall pledge drive. Remember before you could stream your favorite podcast back when you'd have to tune in at a certain time every week to hear your favorite show? And twice a year, you'd hear me and my colleagues asking you to donate to help support your favorite public radio station. Well, even though you're listening to this show via podcast, we are still a broadcast radio station. And this week, maybe even right now, I am pitching live to listeners like you. Become a member today. 
Go to kcrw.com slash give and join forces with us. It takes a big community to power public radio. We rely on individual member support from thousands of folks just like you to power everything that Good Food does, from our annual pie contest and tortilla tournament to this weekly podcast. If you donate right now, you'll get a whole year of member perks, including member-exclusive events, invitations to intimate artist sessions, plus the option to double the meals donated when you choose the food bank in place of a mug or t-shirt. But hey, if you want that mug or t-shirt, that's cool too. If you love this show, do this now. Go to the browser on your phone and type in kcrw.com slash give. When you get there, Choose to give monthly at whatever amount you can. Did you do it? I'm going to trust that you did and say thank you from all of us at Good Food. We literally could not do this without you. Thanks for listening. And I'll be back next week with an all new episode of Good Food. Support comes from USC Online, providing exceptional online graduate programs, certificates, and upskilling for current and aspiring professionals. Explore your graduate options today with the University of Southern California at online.usc.edu.